Hey Blockheads, it's Mitch here from the Dungeon Masters Block. I want to tell you a little bit about another podcast that is with us at the Block Party Podcast Network. This podcast is called The GM Showcase. The GM Showcase is an actual play podcast, and each month we will showcase one GM who will run a number of different games set in a number of different worlds using a number of different systems for a number of talented and awesome players. Beyond the fun of this being an actual play, we will have an introduction and conclusion with each GM that's part of this show, and it's a great insight for those of you who love the Dungeon Masters block and love being Dungeon Masters. This is a podcast that you will love. So go on iTunes and search The GM Showcase, download, subscribe, listen, and just enjoy this new podcast from the Block Party Podcast Network. And now, here's the show. Well, welcome back, Blockheads, to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about, you guessed it, the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all of the players at your table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And this week, we have a great episode lined up for you. We have Keith Baker, the man, the myth, the legend, the creator of Eberron, and many other accolades that we will get to later, joining us for this episode to talk about heroic sacrifice and everything that goes into that. But before we get into the meat, we have some five-star reviews to give a shout-out for. So Mitch, who is our first shout-out to this week? Our first one comes from the UK, and it's from Swordnut. I wonder who that could be. I have and no idea. And it's entitled, Great Resource for Game Masters of All Tabletop RPGs. Five stars. There's a lot of advice here to absorb, and while it's mostly aimed at Dungeons & Dragons, it is surprisingly system agnostic. There are so many ideas fountaining from the hosts that you are sure to find something to inspire you and your players. Your friendly neighborhood, Swordnut. So we appreciate that review, Swordnut. That's from a fellow podcaster. We very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Our next one is from DM, B. So I think B is the beginning for somebody's name, but otherwise it's just a shout out to us somehow, <laughs> you know? But uh, DM, B is from the wonderful land of Canada, the neighbor to our north, and they write extraordinary and they write, I am a new DM, but have played for a while. I love to listen to this podcast every chance I get, most of the time while being at work. Great resource for all. Love the story times. They are a huge inspiration. DMB. So thank you so much, DMB. Thanks. Have to put a little bit of a space there. Not a shout out to ourselves. <laughs> a shout out to DMB from Canada. Well, with that, it's time to move on to the meat for this episode of the DMB. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Carve it up! Just a mouthful! No! The flat meat back on the menu, boys! 
All right, so we are back for another edition of The Meat. Today, we are talking about heroic sacrifice, and we all think of stories, we can all think of stories where you see the hero in the glory of whatever it is they're doing, and in that moment, they have to make a decision that is a huge sacrifice, potentially for the greater good. Sometimes it doesn't pan out, but that's what we are talking about today, and we are joined by Keith Baker. You may know him uh, as a game designer and author, the creator of Eberron, uh, Gloom, and the upcoming RPG Phoenix Dawn, and the upcoming RPG Phoenix Dawn Command. So Keith, welcome to the Dungeon Masters block. We're glad you're here. Hi, glad to be here. So we've told uh, our listeners a little bit about what you've created. You're a game designer. You're an author. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself beyond that? Certainly. Well, I will say, you know, one of the things about me is that I always knew I wanted to be a game designer. So Mm -hmm. from the time I was about 13 or 14, I said, this is a job people have. I want to have that job. And I took a detour and was working in computer games, actually, for... I ended up doing that for about 12 years before I actually got into being able to do full-time role-playing and card and board game design. But it's always been something that's been interesting to me. And beyond that, I would just say storytelling in general is a thing that really interests me. I've written novels... I've created live role-playing games in the computer game world. I've worked on a lot of MMORPGs. And to me, I'm always very interested in sort of how different mediums work for telling stories. Yeah, you're in great company with us then because that is something that we love and we strive (laughs) to do in our D&D campaigns. You just do it in a... A way that you get paid for it, you know? <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> and I'm very lucky for that. Right. Uh, so speaking of one of the RPGs that you've created, can you tell us a little bit more about Phoenix Dawn Command? So Phoenix Dawn Command is uh, different in two ways. The first is that it is a card-driven role-playing game. So instead of dice, you basically have a deck of cards that deals with your sort of capabilities and characteristics and it also sort of essentially takes the place of having a character sheet you know you have this deck of cards that determines your ongoing abilities and sort of your abilities in the moment one of the things we like about this is it gives the player a lot higher sense of narrative control Because basically we've all had those moments where, you know, you're facing the big demon, you give your awesome speech, (laughs) you use your biggest attack, and you roll a one. Right. And we're like, that's just not how the movie scene would play out. One of the most deflating (laughs) moments as a player. Right. And, and, you know, it has its, its ups and downs. We can argue dice some other time. But the point in Phoenix is you're not always going to be able to succeed, but you can look at your hand and say, this isn't the time to make that big speech. And, you know, basically you can look at your hand and say, this is the moment I can, I can do my big thing. Or you can look at it and say, I'm not that strong right now. What, can, what else can I do? The twist there is that you also have essentially a little set of, of a little pool of resources that you can use to push beyond your limits to say, I'm doing this. But when you run out of that, you die. And hence, we get to our heroic sacrifice discussion. Now, the twist with Phoenix is in Phoenix, death is actually how your character grows stronger. Uh, It is the leveling mechanic. Basically, every player as a Phoenix can die and return up to seven times. So each time you die, you come back stronger. But 
you are also getting closer to the end. And we can talk a lot more about sort of why would you do this, how does this make a compelling story and such later, but those are the sort of two things. Is It's, it's a card-based game that puts a lot of narrative control in the hands of the player, but also it is a game where death is actually how your character improves. I believe I found, and I'm sure it links back to somewhere else as well, but I feel, believe I found uh, actual plays of this uh, being tested out. You're leading them on YouTube of Phoenix Dark. Uh, that's Man. quite possible. There's also another podcast called One Shot, and there's a full play session of Phoenix up there. So, yeah, that's another place to see it. Keith, can you tell us how you first got started in role-playing games? So I got started when I was around eight or nine. I got the white box and the first edition hardcover, you know, AD&D books. And I was a little young at the time. No one else was, was playing. You know, I was a little young to actually start playing, but I loved these books. And, you know, so I read them sort of cover to cover. And especially something like the Monster Manual was like, wow, this is, you know, enormous bestiary of monsters. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got pictures and stats, and it was the best thing ever. Uh, I probably started playing 10 or 11, and, you know, part of the whole thing is I just loved, you know, you can read stories, but here's a chance to create a story with my friends, and we, you know, this is something that's unique, and it's about us, and I just loved it. Pretty much from that point on, as I say, I, you know, ran everything under the sun. I was generally, I'd say I was game master about 90% of the time. But yeah, I basically said, again, someone's writing these books. You know, this is a job that, that exists. I want to get that job. Eventually, it took a while to figure out how you actually do get that job. Uh, especially <laughs> back in my day, there wasn't things like game design, you know, majors in college or anything like that. Right. Uh, but eventually I did. Excellent. Very cool. So one of the things that you are really well known for is Ebron. I'm sure a lot of people mm -hmm. listening to the podcast have heard your name, heard it associated with Ebron. So our surprise question is, if you had to pick a city in the world of Ebron that was your favorite, could you tell mm -hmm. us which one that is and why? So it's a really tough, you know, it is a tough question because, again, I've made all of Ebron. Right. So obviously I love all of it. <laughs> And, you know, the sort of default easy answers would be Sharn, which is the big sort of focus, you know, city of towers with all sorts of gritty mm -hmm. stuff going on. Or uh, Stormreach, which is well developed in the computer game and things like that. But personally, I would actually say my favorite city is probably Greywall. Mm. And Greywall is the border city between uh, Brayland, which is, you know, sort of one of the five nations, the main human civilization, and Droam, which is a civilization of monsters. And I like to say it's basically Casablanca, but with trolls. Ah. And it is something I like because one of the things that's really interesting about Eberron is basically taking standard traditional things about D&D &D and sort of looking at them in new ways. And Droam in particular <laughs> is basically just saying monsters are intelligent creatures. You know, you take gnolls, orcs, goblins, what have you. They're intelligent creatures. You know, actually Medusas is a good example. You know, Medusas are not only intelligent, they're smarter than people. So if you actually presume a civilization of Medusas, what does that look like? You know, how is it different from a human civilization? And Droam is basically where a whole bunch of different monstrous races have been brought together. And it's fun to sort of say, if these were the tools you had 
to create a society? How would you use them? Beyond that, it's a frontier city, which means, ooh, you've got all your sort of lawless things. And it's just very interesting to drop players into a place where humans are the minority and, you know, where uh, where it's it's all the monsters. This is their ground. And there's a lot of just interesting, fun things you can do with it. So it's something I did a 10,000-word backdrop on in the online dragon back in the day. Uh, should Eberron ever get opened up for the DMs Guild, I definitely want to do more with Droam. So we'll see. Awesome. That'd be oh, great. and also point out just <laughs> randomly, you know, uh, it is... Uh, Droam is where my novel uh, Queen of Stone is set. I'm not even sure if that's still in print anymore, but it exists out there. So anyone who wants to get a good look at Droam, check out the Queen of Stone. Excellent. That's made my list now. I'll have to go check that out. (laughs) It's basically, you know, a spy story, except basically as part of what I like about that particular series is sort of looking at what does espionage look like Hmm. in you know, a D&D world. And some of my other novels are just more traditional. Oh, you know, it's a D&D story. But right. I like the Thorn books because it is much more, this is a spy thriller, but in a world where magic is what we have instead of gadgets and things like that. That's awesome. And at least part of that taking place in this very, very unique city where just, yeah, monsters abound in a different way than what yeah. most D&D players are used to. Taking by the title, you know, one of the main characters actually is Medusa. <laughs> a lot of people tell me she's her, their favorite character in the story. So. Nice. So let's start talking about this whole idea that Phoenix Dawn Command is really based off of and how us as DMs can bring this idea into our campaigns and hopefully make our players fall in love with this idea of heroic sacrifice. So I think the first thing I'd like to have us talk about, and uh, maybe Keith, you can kind of start this off because I know this is something that you've been thinking about a lot with Phoenix Dawn Command, but uh, let's talk about what is the power uh, of sacrifice? What's the power of death and dying in a role-playing game with player characters specifically in mind? Well, there's a lot of very difficult things about using it in traditional uh, role-playing games, but, you know, a, a simple story for me is part of the inspiration for Phoenix in the first place was actually a long-time Exalted game hmm. that I was playing in uh, with a really good friend of mine who's the co-creator of Phoenix, and it was a game we had been playing for probably a year and a half, you know, every other week, you know, it was really... Uh, tight group of friends and essentially I had to move away and we were sort of like okay well what happens with my character and I talked with with Dan a bunch and basically we ended up having this showdown with this you know the big villain and my character ended up sacrificing herself to defeat him and basically as a sort of nature-oriented character ended up then sort of becoming a tree And so sort of I was still there and sort of, you know, now bound to the earth, but, you know, but my character had passed on. And the thing is, we could have totally said, oh, I just go away for a while or, you know, uh, someone else can play me. You know, you can just play me as an NPC or something like that. But the thing about it is it was this amazing moment of both being able to defeat this huge villain who had been haunting us for a year And also feeling like something I did really mattered and had a cost. 
And this is the point to me is when it comes to creating stories, I like my role-playing game to feel like it could be a satisfying novel or a movie. Yeah. And those moments are really powerful. When someone makes a terrible sacrifice, when someone dies, you know, when there are consequences. And part of the problem is all too often we're very concerned with, you know, a game being fair or the players not feeling like they've lost power. I will say that in the first Eberron adventure I, I published, Shadows of the Last War, it is uh, sort of the sequel, you know, basically within the original Eberron source book, you start off, you, you're working for someone, you recover a thing, and then in the second one, you basically recover a second piece of this thing. And in the original end of that adventure, it was set up that you basically go into a dungeon, you, you find the thing, and you come out, and you're basically ambushed by this huge mass of the Order of the Emerald Claw, who essentially say, and we're taking that thing from you. The point was very much trying to essentially capture the mood of the first part of Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. and to essentially say, we're setting you up to hate these villains, and you're going to get revenge on them. But it doesn't always work because players aren't good at being told this is a fight you can't win. You know, yeah. usually people are just going to assume this is this is a game. I've got to have a chance here. You know, I mean, they don't want to give up. And I'm not saying that was a good design in the first place. You know, I mean, there, there are, again, issues. That's one of the things you learn is players don't like to uh basically players don't like to lose right and that's fair but there's a difference when it's not just that you lose it's that you do something that you know it may have a cost but it's a choice you make and you know and again not wanting to get too wildly off topic but this is the point of phoenix players die a lot but the point is the setting is such that the world needs that sacrifice. Your missions are really important and often the only way you can triumph is sacrifice and that's a choice you make, especially with the fact that, as I said, the cards as opposed to dice put a lot more of the control in your hands. You know what you're doing. And so I would say 80 to 90% of the time that players die in Phoenix, they feel excited about it. You know, because they are doing something with that death. It's not just, oh, crap, the orc got a critical hit and I'm I'm gone. It's, I am throwing myself down the mouth of that dragon so I can tear him apart from the inside. You know, it's, you take Lord of the Rings. It's that moment where Gandalf holds the bridge. And it's, okay, he's dying, but he is single-handedly saving the rest of the group <laughs> and facing this giant thing. And that sort of that moment is, as it stands... A lot of times death in a game like Dungeons and Dragons is basically random. You failed a saving throw. The orc got a better, you know, got a critical hit. And that's not exciting. That doesn't feel like that's what happened in the movie. But giving people these moments where they feel like their death accomplishes something or just that it's awesome. And it doesn't have to be death. But whatever sacrifice it is, I break my staff and the blast of power destroys the thing. You know, so again, sacrifice doesn't have to mean death, but it means there is a cost 
And it's how do you make that feel worth it? You brought this up before, but just the power of like that sacrifice in novels, in mm-hmm. movies. Like I know for me, some of my favorite movies, I'm like, well, the the main character or characters end up dying. And a lot of the times the thing that makes it so powerful is that they're dying for either someone mm-hmm. or something that they mm-hmm. believe in. Like Braveheart is my favorite movie. Uh, v for Vendetta is a close second to that and the main characters die and instead of like i think i think a thing with gaming Mm -hmm. is that as players i think sometimes we see dying as losing right Uh, which is not when we look at these movies when we look at these novels we don't see it as like these characters losing we love the characters even more because of it and this is the key a key point is people were asking me well could i just play phoenix in eberron because mm-hmm. they love Eberron, that's that's why they've been paying, you know following me, and and great, I'm making a new game, but can they play <laughs> it in Eberron? And the point to me is you could, but Eberron isn't designed for that. And mm-hmm. this is sort of the point of Phoenix is a setting in which you are basically making a last stand against an existential threat that we don't even really understand. You are sort of the heroes of this empire that is facing you know unknown mystical terrors and it is that case where the stories are things like okay there's a zombie outbreak in this village you have to contain it here and if you don't we are going to lose this entire region and you know it is is the lives of tens of thousands of people are depending on you stopping this here and when those are your stakes then yes throwing your life away to stop it feels worth it if your stakes are, we're going down into a dungeon because we want to make some money, then throwing your life away doesn't feel as dramatic. And that's part of the thing is you need a story where the stakes feel high enough to create that kind of moment. Because again, if all you're doing is just, you know, oh, we're doing this because we want a new magic sword, then you don't have that same sense of power usually. You know, we're talking a lot about somebody putting themselves in the line of fire, like end of life (laughs) type situations for sacrifice. I think, too, something that can be harnessed from sacrifice, the power of it, is even even doing lesser things sacrificially that are still sacrifices. So, you you know, it doesn't have to be jumping down the throat of the dragon in order to, to defeat it. But it could be, here's two decisions. You're going to have to sacrifice one of those which would either be really good or really bad, and it may have repercussions later. So even just creating those types of situations for your players can be really interesting to see how they decide to use that sacrifice. And and that's the thing, is you're absolutely right that, you know, life and death is a huge thing to put on the line, and part of the point of Phoenix is that death isn't the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Which the other thing that, of course, makes Phoenix very different in that way is that failure is an option. You know, in that scene, you know, with the zombie outbreak, the point is the players know they could all die and that won't be the end of the game. Whereas in most, you know, most things, well, if you all die, the story's over and here it won't. They'll all come back, but they'll come back, you know, a day later back home and that battle will be lost and there will be consequences. So they sort of know, again, they'll have to deal with the mess if they don't fix it. If you see what I'm saying. Right. And that's part of the thing is, like I said, going back to that Eberron adventure I wrote originally, players don't usually think a story is going to be set up to basically create a total party kill. 
You know, that's just, why is that fun? And so the fact that death is not the end, you know, does make a difference. So going to a normal game where death does mean the end of a character, you're absolutely right. Finding smaller sacrifices, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. But the kind of situation I like in Phoenix, or starting with that and then how you transfer that over, is that you can say something like, you're in a room full of innocent people, there is a bomb, you have five seconds to disarm it, you can try that, but it's going to be a really high skill, you know, skill check, and if you fail, boom, everyone's going to die. Mm-hmm. Or one of you can throw yourself on the bomb, and that person will definitely die, but you know no one else will. Now, in Phoenix, of course, again, that's a, a life or death thing, but you could do similar types of things where, like I said, you know, the staff or something is think, look at the things that are important to the players. You know, so in a common type D&D game, one of the things is objects. You know, okay, we've got this thing. You can try and defeat it. You can do this stuff. Or you can just kill it by stabbing it with your Holy Avenger, but it will destroy your Holy Avenger. And it's back to that. Are you going to take the chance that you can beat it the other way? Which you might not, you know, might not do. There might be costs. People might die. Or you're just going to say, I'll do it. And make that sacrifice of your trusty sword that's been with you and that is a useful thing. And of course, the whole point on that is you then have to get into how you reward that and how you don't make the player. Because again, you want these moments to feel exciting. And part of the point of Phoenix is why Phoenix works is we take what is normally the worst thing in a role-playing game, failing, death, losing, and we actually say that is how your character improves. (laughs) And even in that uh, exalted game that we talked about, my character became a tree you know, so uh, I was out of play, but it was also essentially I sort of ascended to becoming this kind of nature deity. So at least from my story, I transcended things and become this awesome, you know, entity, if you see what I'm saying. And so it is all back to the thing of if you're going to demand a sacrifice, you've got to make it both feel dramatically exciting but you also kind of do want to find a way to make the player feel like oh that was totally worth it and i think this is really really prevalent to a lot of our listener base because they're running games and i think a lot of our listener base just from the feedback that we've gotten they really 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 uh, key in on this idea of storytelling mm-hmm. and just the mm-hmm. power of story and i think a lot of our listeners understand the power of heroic sacrifice and like as they're running games, they're looking to have that be a part of their stories. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of these things that is difficult for people who are running games is those players who, who see dying as losing. It's not a win. It's a lose. Right. And like these different ways that we can get our players on board. I think Phoenix Dawn command Mm -hmm. is fantastic for this because I think that (laughs) I think that it can do something that, as people who are DMs and running games, we might be striving to get our players to understand for years mm-hmm. and having difficulty with because it's like, well, every time their character dies, even if it is a cool way, they they're they're frustrated, they're mm-hmm. upset, whatever it is. But in Phoenix Dawn Command, they're able to have these moments of sacrifice, and yet it's not like, all right, rip up your character sheet, like until seven times. Until right? seven that's times. like the, yeah. That's actually what makes it kind of cool. Is in the beginning, you can be very reckless. 
And then as you get more powerful, your character is stronger. You do cooler things, but you're also like, yeah, but I can't just be quite (laughs) so. But this is the sixth time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I do think, you know, it is my favorite thing about Phoenix, you know, is just that point that you can tell these stories that just don't, they're just hard to tell in, say, traditional D&D because, like you said, the game itself is essentially set up for death to be failure. Now, going back to it, though, part of the point is like you said it doesn't have to be life and death you know it really is about look at your players look at what they care about and you know again is it their items is it their reputation is it friendly npcs that you can put essentially on the chopping block you know are you going to place you know this your favorite hireling or whoever it is at risk and that's one of the things i've sort of said for a long time is you want to find ways with the stories for players to care about things yeah other than themselves you know because that's if all the only thing you can take away from the players is is life and death you really don't have much to work with but the more you can get them invested in npcs in people's opinion of them in things like that you know I love doing the sort of thing where you get to stay in a particular location for a long time so that we can actually get invested in uh, people or places there. Even for things like one-shots, one of my favorite one-shots I made essentially starts out feeling like it's sort of the breakfast club. You're a bunch (laughs) of uh, young folks. You know, you are like a paladin and a rogue and a wizard and a priestess but you're all like acolytes and you know apprentices and stuff and you're essentially being sent down into a hole as a sort of penance and you think oh this is a minor little dungeon crawl you know whatever and it seems like that at first and then it seems like it's done and you're like that wasn't so tough and you discover that essentially in part because of what you did down in the dungeon when you come back up there's been a zombie outbreak in the town and basically (laughs) what seemed like the breakfast club is now 29 days later (laughs) and Part of what makes it work is at the start of the adventure, every character answers a number of questions. And so you take the priestess and I say, okay, you had a fight with your younger sister before you left. What was it about? And who's also the best friend of the young rogue? And, you know, that is connection to that character. And, you know, the paladin had a disagreement with his father. And then basically that means the character's the players are thinking about this. That priestess has to create her younger sister in her mind. And what would I have fought with her about? And, you know, the other guy thinks about him. What was my friendship? What was my connection? What did she want me to do? And then when you come back and that person's been bitten by a zombie and you have to decide if you're going to kill her, you know, they actually care about it because it's become something that they have ownership in. Mm -hmm. I didn't just tell them, oh, you have a sister. I said to them, you tell me about your sister. And that gives them this sort of sense of connection and and wanting that character to survive, if that makes any sense. Yeah, we always advocate for having a character creation night. And like, Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. this is exactly why, like always 
getting to know the PCs that your players are creating yep. and get, it's awesome to get them to know each other before they even start the game. Even if it's not like in a sense of your character knows this, but being able to see the story being weaved together before it's even told and who the main characters are. And I think that asking questions like that to start off with is a way to get your players on board without even yep. like, spelling it out to them like asking them a question simply like at the beginning of the game of like you know you have a list of questions and maybe you just add to that list of questions like who or what would your character be willing to die for Mm -hmm. and like find out if it's that sister if it's the dad if it's the idea of freedom and I think that's the kind of thing that will get your player as they play the game when those moments come up they'll remember that question They'll remember that it's key to their PC and they'll go, wow, I should really be invested in this. And it might get, whether it's Phoenix Dawn Command, D&D, whatever the game system is, whether there is life after death, whatever it is, they might step up and be on board with that idea of sacrifice and heroic sacrifice. And and coming back to, so uh, a thing we do in Phoenix character creation, but again, the principle can be used anywhere, you know, is a big part of, of Phoenix character creation is just asking questions. And in Phoenix, part of the principle is that when you are making your character, you have died and come back for the first time. Basically, no one is, is just born a Phoenix. You become a Phoenix by dying and returning and so one of the you know some of the questions are basically how did you die and basically why did you come back you know what are you fighting for what do you still care about and you know we basically ask people sort of what do you care about and what's your worst fear these give the game master a lot of hooks to say okay i know i can threaten that thing or you know this is a thing you're afraid of but it also again as you said makes the player think about it And a lot of times, this is a complete side note, but it's still the same basic concept of one of the things we do in Phoenix during combat, and it's something, again, I now just do anytime, I've used it in 5th edition as well, is basically make a list of interesting things that are in the area. And then if the player thinks of an interesting way to use one of those things, they get a little bonus. Part of the point is so that if the fight is in a tavern, I'm going to have a little list that's going to say there's a roaring bonfire, you know, in the fireplace. There's a chandelier. There's a plate glass window. There's a barmaid with a tray of drinks. And there's a stool. If you, when you're doing your move or doing whatever you do, if you say, well, I want to grab the guy and shove him in the fireplace, or (laughs) I am going to, you know, shove him through the plate, try and smash him through the plate glass window or swing on the chandelier, you get a bonus. And... The thing is, you don't need to tell people those. You know, it's obvious you're in a tavern. There should be a fireplace. But it's amazing how often people don't stop and think, of course there should be a fireplace in a tavern. And it's just once you sort of challenge people to think about what could you do with a fireplace, then that makes them sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll grab a log out of it or, you know, I'll do whatever. (laughs) And so it's that same sort of thing of presumably your character cares about something other than themselves. Presumably they have a town that they were born in. But a lot of times we just don't think about those things when we're making a character because no one asks, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And the other thing tied back again to asking questions is... Again, in Phoenix, but again, it could be any system. 
you know, it doesn't have to be. Uh, I really do like that sort of ongoing asking questions. You know, uh, when we start in Phoenix with an important NPC who's going to be sort of the Charlie to your angels, if you will, you know, sort of <laughs> ongoing uh, character you're going to deal with a lot. Uh, one of the first things I do is actually ask the player questions about this person and say, you've all heard rumors about them. Tell me a rumor you've heard. And of each player, tell me a rumor. And, you know, or I might say you're running into a grizzled veteran, you know, and he's horribly injured. And what's the what's the most sort of grizzly injury you see? And again, the point of it is this isn't something you want to overuse necessarily. And part of the point of being a DM is, you know, usually you're the DM because people are trusting you to have the awesome story. But having moments like that, I think actually a good example is I have had a scenario where people find this defaced idol in the woods. It's like a, a, a nature guardian. And I say, okay, it's, it's the head of this nature guardian. And however, the lips have been sewn shut with vines. And that's not normal. And it's been disfigured in some other way. What is that? And I have the players think about it. And like the first time I ran it, uh, one of the players said, uh, it doesn't have eyes. The eyes have been sort of rubbed out. Basically, all the things that had been corrupted by this spirit animals and things like that i had them gouge their eyes out and so that was one thing you noticed it's the guy who's been possessed he's gouged his eyes out and the point of it again was basically giving the players the sense of i have a connection to this i wasn't just told this i you know i made a piece of this and you know so now again if that character dies when that thing happens i feel a little more ownership which makes it stronger. Like I said, if it's a character, I care about that character a little because I made up a piece of his story. And again, you don't want to totally overuse it. You know, people are treating you as the game master because they're they're wanting a story from you. But finding ways to, again, give players an investment in a place or a thing or a person raises those stakes on, on then do they want to sacrifice it or they feel the loss more when that thing has to go. I want to make a little bit of a transition here. Before I do that, though, I want to, uh, this is connected, I want to ask you a little bit about the lore mm -hmm. of Phoenix Dawn Command. So the transition that I want to make is into, let's start talking about um, how, let's say we get our players right. on board with this idea of heroic sacrifice. How do we then, as GMs, make sure that we reward mm -hmm. Uh, our players and our PCs when right. they make those right. heroic sacrifices. Now, the question I want to ask you is with Phoenix Dawn Command, you've already stated like that one of the rewards in that system is that when you die, you mechanically, you get better, right. you become stronger. Um, what is the lore behind that in the game? And it's a little trickier than that too, in an interesting way. So basically the world of Phoenix has been sort of this peaceful fantasy civilization. It was unified long ago by the first phoenixes. There was a terrible civil war. They stepped down. But we've been basically, things have been good for the last couple hundred years. And in fact, the phoenixes, who were these ancient champions, have all sort of died out and become legends. Now, within the last three years, there is just a wave of supernatural terror just across 
the empire that we can't really explain. Just sort of any horrible thing you can imagine is probably going on somewhere. There's an army of the dead that is marching up from the south and no one's found a way to stop it. There is a chant that people just start chanting and basically going crazy and killing everybody. No one knows why it starts, what the story is, but we've lost cities to it. You know, it's essentially our zombie analog. You have werewolves, you have hauntings, you have, you know, sort of any terrible thing you can think of is going on somewhere, and we don't know why, but it's getting worse. You know, in a sense, you can think of it almost a little like Pacific Rim, where, you know, again, all we know is this is happening faster and faster. And so as the game begins, a third of the empire has been lost to forces of the dread. But the one thing we have is that phoenixes has started returning. And so a phoenix is someone who, when they die, they're a dramatic, you know, a meaningful person, they die a meaningful death. You basically go into a sort of spiritual pocket of limbo called the crucible and undergo a host of physical and spiritual trials. And if you make it through, you are reborn as a phoenix. And you have the potential every time you die, you go back to the crucible, go through the trials again and come out. Time in the crucible doesn't pass the way it does elsewhere. So part of the point is you could have died yesterday when you're making your character and say, but I was in the crucible for like 20 years. Or you could have died 300 years ago at a different point in history. And you're only actually in there for a month or two as far as you were concerned. But now you're coming back in this time of need. Now, the trick about it is when you die... You go back to the crucible, you go through trials, we talk about what have, you, uh, what have you learned, but this is the point. It's not just a straight mechanical, oh, you just level up. You know, it's not just uh, you get 10 more hit points and your, your BAB is one better. It is the first thing we say is basically there's six schools, which are kind of analogous to classes. You have the Durant Phoenix, who's hard to kill, is sort of, you know, your classic tank character. The Devoted, who's more uh, support, healer. Uh, the Shrouded, who's your, you know, again, sort of stealth stabby character. The point is, when you die, we say, why did you die? What kind of death was that? You know, what was it that you died for? And each Phoenix school is aligned with a certain type of death. So the Durant dies because they weren't tough enough. If they were just a little stronger, you know, then uh, they might have they might have pulled through. And so the Durant becomes stronger. Whereas the Devoted dies for others. They sacrifice themselves to protect others. And their abilities are more about strengthening others, healing others, you know, working through others. And so it's not just when you die oh, I'm just, you know, doing this and happens. We also want you to think about why are you dying? And I should note, one of the, the schools is the bitter, and the bitter dies as a failure. So, you know, you can always just say, yeah, that just sucked. I just died, and that's bitter. <laughs> and so, again, it's not just you die and you level up. The abilities you gain are in part going to be about, but tell us why you died, what kind of death, how do you see that? And so as your character grows stronger, you really are sort of a reflection of the sacrifices you've made and, you know, your sort of triumphs and losses. That's awesome. Uh, so as in Phoenix Dawn Command, uh, we can say that um, how do you reward sacrificial actions of your players in dying? It's it's not only mechanically, but in story, it's like you can see your character being shaped into the person that they become. And you have that moment of the player saying, this is the death I feel good about. 
This is kind of death I yeah. want. Now, Phoenix Dog Command is very, it's its right. unique it's built because of this, this system. Concept. There are way more systems mm-hmm. out there, D&D including, that a lot of the mm-hmm. times when a character dies, unless he's going to go through some resurrection mm-hmm. or something, he is dead. She is dead. And even in Phoenix Dog Command, there there's is a, a point, point where it is the end. The seventh death, which I would argue makes that seven death even more powerful and even more scary than the I'm a character who dies once and then I'm dead kind of sense. Now, I think all of us as as DMs, as GMs would say that this is not the point where you as the game master stop rewarding heroic sacrifice. In fact, I would say that it has to be even more at this point. So I think what I'd want us to talk Mm -hmm. about is in that sense of it's the seventh deck for Phoenix Dawn Command, in that sense of you're not playing a system like Phoenix Dawn where you have a number of deaths that you can go through, but it's like you're dead, one death. How do we as the ones who are running the story how do we, in story terms, how do how we do you make it work? How do we reward those players and the PC car- Yeah, how do we reward that? There's a couple different elements that immediately come to mind for me. Part of it is, as I said, it has to feel justified by the story. You know, part of it is the if my death saves this kingdom or kills Darth Vader or you know does this thing that we've been trying to do forever, then. That is, in a sense, a reward. If I care about the story or the world or the village enough that I feel I single-handedly, because of what I did, not single-handedly, I'm not saying make all the other players irrelevant, yeah. but if I feel someone had to do this, I did it, and the story now reflects forever what I did, that is a big reward itself. And that especially is when you're dealing with life or death. Is You, know, you have to feel like it mattered. And that's really something that is is all about the story, you know, and that's that's in our hands in creating the story. Are we setting the stakes? Are we, you know, creating a conflict the players care about? Beyond that, one of the things in a life or death situation is do you have a plan for what happens with the player next? And I will say one of the most disappointing death situations I had is I had a, a game that I was in as a player. Our fighter didn't show up. The game master didn't change the the adventure. We ran into a bunch of vampires. It was a long, grueling two-hour battle, uh, and we all died. And it was a frustrating fight in the first place. It was not a random encounter, but not like a huge thing. And basically, what we all told the game master is we basically wanted this to mean something. We wanted to be like, well, okay, Let's just have us all come back as vampires and we'll kill the fighter when he shows up and he'll come back as a vampire and we'll be working for the bad guys now. And we're just going to turn this around and we are going to be like a vampire campaign in part because we wanted the death to matter. You know, we've been through this grueling thing and we wanted it to mean something. And instead, the game master was just like, I ah, know a cleric finds you and, and raises you from the dead. And we're like, well, that was completely meaningless. And so part of that point is feeling that there is, you know, a reward or a consequence, you know, that that again, we were going to give up on the story we had before and say, I guess we're bad guys now. But that would have at least (laughs) felt like that's how the story goes. The fact that we failed and died meant something. But the other side of that is saying if this player is going to die and you're not going to just resurrect them 
you're going to have that death have meaning. Who will the player come back as? And one of the points is it's always lame to just be like, oh, he'll come back as his brother, who's also a fighter. You know, one of the things is, again, <laughs> if you've developed an interesting NPC cast, are there any NPCs who could step up and become a PC that that player feels an attachment to? Oh, wow. You know, I'm going to become the, you know, that orphan I saved back in episode three. Well, now he's, you know, yeah. called to become a paladin and heck, he'll be, you know, bumped up. But that sort of sense of part of having a character's death have meaning and feel good about letting go of that character is to make sure you feel that you have someone new who has their own meaningful place in the story. And that it's not just, again, I'm now a shadow of my previous character or I'm the yep. exact same character and it doesn't really matter that my character went away. But someone who especially, if there is a connection where this is someone you saved or this is someone who has gained power, you know, you were a paladin and now they are a paladin because you died and your power has been transferred to them. Going back to the seventh <laughs> death of Phoenix... One of the points there is when you die your seventh death, you come back as a new rank one phoenix. You know, you're just a new character. You could say, I am going to be the successor of my previous character. And he will now continue to exist as my mentor. Yeah. Because basically you have a mentor in uh, the Crucible who is the phoenix who had your power before you. What I always encourage people is if you're starting up a new campaign, you're going to go down the road... Uh, or something like that, rather than just saying, I'm going to be the successor to my previous character, I'd like to say, be the successor of the previous character to your left. You know, basically, let let the other player now be your spirit guide. As I said, it's a little complicated concept, but it's that idea that their character continues to exist, and you can have scenes when you die. Talk to that character, and hey, talk to that player. You know, they get to replay yeah. their, their old character. And that comes back to my point of the Exalted game, where, again, my character died. I was out of the game. I couldn't just come back and play next week or even next month. But my character did still have a role in that world. And so if you can find a way, even if it's just saying, well, he is now commemorated and his statue is in the town square, you know, something that is an ongoing impact or an ongoing connection that we still have. We name an order of knights after that person, and hey, your new character can be one of those knights, you know, or something like that. You know, I said before the idea of, I'm going to thrust my holy avenger into the heart of the demon and it'll be destroyed. You know, part of the question there is in that kind of scenario, I would try and reward that player and give them something. It could be they get a divine boon. It could be that the heart of the demon is itself now an artifact that they have. And the point is, it'll be different. It's not just going to be their trusty Holy Avenger, which they already have. So again, their sacrifice is going to have a meaningful effect that they have thrown away that cool artifact they always had. But I would give them something that would be interesting, drive the story, and still feel like I didn't just throw away a ton of power, if that makes any sense. Chris, I know you and me have done this before, but other ways to do it is in simple storytelling fashion, like 
make sure that that character, if they if it's a death that we're talking about, make sure that you give them in story a, a funeral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You show them respect. You show them that you cared as like you show them you have the NPCs that were important in their lives show up and maybe like give some eulogies. You give the players who are around the table a chance to have their characters give eulogies. I think that's yeah. a good way to show them respect and reward that kind of sacrifice. Other ways that I know I've done uh, it in the past is we've talked about cameos, like bringing player characters back in future stories. That doesn't mean bringing them back alive, but like you could find a place where maybe they've erected a statue because of this warrior who gave his life, who sacrificed Mm -hmm. his Vorpal sword, whatever it was to save that region or even the world. Like there's different ways to reward that even after that current game is done. No, and absolutely. And that's sort of the point. First off, I love the idea of NPC eulogies. That's just an awesome chance to to step in and remind them of stories they may have forgotten, of, of people they saved and things like that. So I love that. But exactly the sense of you can just have the there is a statue, there is an order of knights named after them, there is something. But you can also look for ways in a magical world that even in, you know, a non-Phoenixy world, they can still affect things. Obviously, divine characters are the easiest for this because you can say their spirit lingers on protecting such and such, or they come to you in a vision, or things like this. But even with non-divine characters, you know... There's still ways, and especially depending on what the afterlife is in whatever setting you're playing with, to say that, you know, they are still in some way affecting things, protecting things, things like that. You know, as I said, the fact that in the Exalted campaign, even though, again, my character was done, I still knew, oh, but I am now sort of guardian of this grove and have actually sort of transcended to a different state of things. Even if it's just uh, in a classic afterlife scenario, because a lot of D&Ds have classic afterlife saying, oh, you're now becoming the squire of the war god or, you know, something like that. But if you can then find a way to actually have the character return in a vision or in a temporary, oh, they're released from, from, you know, Hades to do this one last thing or stuff like that, that's always incredibly cool as well. You know, we think about sacrifice over and over and over again as we come into the DM world, because I think, you know, one of the things that oftentimes wraps people into the story, and we've said this multiple times throughout the podcast so far, that sacrifice is that thing that can wrap people into that story in a way that really nothing mm-hmm. else can. And so we want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge, both from Phoenix Dawn and uh, and from just your time playing in D&D as a player and as a mm-hmm. DM. Uh, sharing what you know about sacrifice and why that is so important to stories. So, Keith, if if people want to get in touch with you and just share stories mm-hmm. about how they've used sacrifice in the past or how they are thinking about using sacrifice mm-hmm. in the future, where can they reach you to send you those stories or those questions? Uh, so the best way to do that is if you go to my website, which is keith-baker.com, uh, K-E-I-T-H. There's a contact button there. I often write about Eberron and things there. And again, that's the best place. You can uh, just contact me through that. I'm also on Twitter as at 
Hell Cow Keith. Excellent. <laughs> I'll throw this out there as well. Keith is also going to be at a catacon this year. So if you haven't got tickets for a catacon and you'd like to possibly join in as he does a character creation session of Phoenix Donka Man, that's a place you could do that. Mm-hmm. And again, last last word for me is just to say that if you want people to care about sacrifice, you got to think of it in the story and make the stakes something they care about. Make them feel like it's worthwhile. Keith, we thank you so much for joining us on this show. We hope to have you back sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, uh, and I look forward to it. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. We hope that you've enjoyed our time with Keith Baker and just his look into his new game and this whole idea of heroic sacrifice. It's really something that I think is something awesome that if you can get your players on board, uh, this is something amazing. I know, Chris, this is something that you with Sanjin have really embraced and we've seen it play out in the Voyage of the Unending Sea. And it's I think it's been probably has it been one of your top three if not top favorite character is Kruor still your favorite uh yeah because I, I finished that campaign with him so <laughs> he's still my favorite but Sanjin is definitely up there as of right now awesome so if you as listeners would like to get in touch with us Chris where can they reach us at you can send us an email at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com we would love to hear your stories about how you either as a player or a DM have put your players or your character in a position to sacrifice either something big or something little in order to be wrapped up into the story. You can also give us a five-star review on iTunes, and at the beginning of the show, like we did today, you will get a shout-out, so you'll get to hear yourself be a little a little more famous than you already were before. <laughs> you can also find us on Stitcher and all of the other various Android podcasting apps that are out there. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. You can like our Facebook page if you want updates about the show, if you want D&D memes, if you want other D&D goodness. Those are the places that you want to go for that. So Mitch, we have somebody that supports us on Patreon that we need to do a shout out for right now. And with that, our Patreon for this week is... Anthony Bishop! Thank you so much, Anthony, for your support over on our Patreon page. Anthony is a dreaded silver dragon. So that means he gets access to the Patreon-only section on the forum as well as the backlog of all of our bonus episodes that are on our Patreon page. So thank you so much, Anthony, for your support. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Well, with that, we are turning off the mics and closing things down here at the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where you come to hear about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, The only person that's capable of playing God. Killing characters. And lowering the egos of everyone else at the table. It's so sad every time we have to turn off the mics and we have to say goodnight, but goodnight, everyone. (laughs) Keep on dungeon mastering. Goodbye.